Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. The Supreme Court has begun its new term. On our last episode, Adams spoke with Richard Epstein and Allison Ho about what they see coming next from the court. While that episode gave us a view from the center right, this time we're doing something a little bit different. Today, we've invited two more scholars to discuss the state of the court as well as some upcoming administrative state and separation of powers cases. We're pleased to be joined by Professors Josh Chaffetz of Georgetown Law and Noah Rosenblum of NYU School of Law. Welcome to Gray Matters. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And as always, we're also joined by the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White. Thanks, Chase. Glad you're back to lead the show this time. And I just want to say uh, how grateful I am uh, to have Noah and Josh on the show, uh, two Two great friends and friends of the Gray Center. And before I mention anything else, I want to say that the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty uh, at NOAA's NYU Law School just released the symposium issue we produced last year on what the rule of law means in administrative law. And NOAA had a great essay in that symposium called What We Talk About When We Talk About the Rule of Law in the Administrative State. And so I hope our listeners will check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. And so starting with the big picture... And we can start with you, Noah, since we mentioned your essay. What is your sense of the Roberts Court on administrative law? Like Taking the last few major cases and the ones coming up on the docket, where does the court seem to be headed? And so thank you for that generous plug. And thank you, Adam, the Gray Center, for having organized what was really just a a dynamite symposium. Chase, I tend to think of the Roberts Court in administrative law as a bit like the dog that's in danger of having caught the car. And it feels like in the last term and in this coming term, maybe the dog really has caught the car and we're about to see what happens. So there's a kind of deep history and then a more immediate history. And without monologuing, I'll just say that the deep history, I'd say, is of some elements of the conservative legal movement having some skepticism about administration, especially certain regulatory agencies, and trying to develop doctrines to curb it. But the more recent history is of the translation of those doctrines into a certain kind of formal jurisprudence, the shocking and incredibly rapid rise to prominence of that jurisprudence and the ramifications for administrative law writ large that we're living with. Is that your general sense too, Josh, or do you have a different kind of take? Yes, I, I agree with everything that, that Noah just said. I would um, uh, just add as a matter of situating it that I think one of the sort of themes that we see coming out of the Roberts Court, not just in the context of administrative law, but in uh, the context of a whole bunch of areas of, of public law um, is a, a real sense of uh, sort of judicial self-empowerment, of judicial uh, self-aggrandizement. I think you see this in the um, election law context. I've, I've written about how you see this in the context of, of congressional oversight um, uh, and the court's approach to congressional oversight, um, but also really clearly in things like the major questions doctrine, um, where the court is increasingly, set, you know, uh, kind of paying lip service to this being a matter of pr- protecting congressional power, but is in fact uh, sort of doing it in the context of interfering with uh, with schemes that Congress has has set up, and in the context of telling Congress how it must legislate, right? So, put, sort of setting the court up above Congress, um, and I think that's a sort of theme that runs throughout the Roberts Court in a lot of ways. No, you said something in your in your answer that really struck me. You said sort of the, the rapidness with which things have changed. 
Um, and that's certainly been the case in recent Supreme Court cases. But sometimes when I'm thinking about or talking about the Roberts Court, I compare it to that hipster band that uh, was happening for 10 years before it became an overnight success. Um, and I wonder, obviously things have changed a lot, it seems, at the Supreme Court level very quickly. But my sense has been, obviously as somebody who's very sympathetic to what the court's doing, that the roots of this, there are a few roots of it, and they're a little deeper, right? There's sort of the Randy Barnett critique of judicial restraint in general, um, going back a decade or more. There's Philip Hamburger's book, um, which seemed to have been maybe an intellectual turning point about a decade ago on administrative law per se. Um, That in conjunction with changes in politics and government all seem to have collided in this last five to 10 year window. So I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on your sense of the timing of all this and how how things have, have come together at this moment. Your assessment, Adam, is totally right. I tell my students that everything in history is change and continuity. Nothing comes out of nowhere, but the very fact that we have new developments suggests that something might have changed that means that the things that were continuous have now been inflected in a particular way. And while I'm out spouting aphorisms, right, it's the, the Hemingway line about bankruptcy, right? You go bankrupt slowly, then all at once. So I think the examples that you gave are actually pretty great illustrations of just that phenomenon. So famously, right, when Philip Hamburger writes his book on whether administrative law is unlawful, I'd say its reception was generally that it was a bit of a fringe text written by a scholar with some pretty idiosyncratic views about administrative law and the history of the administrative state. And that wasn't just a position taken by, you know, left liberals or center left folks. Famously, Adrian Vermeule, who I don't think had yet taken a more religious turn in his jurisprudence or public law persona, but at the time was pretty much a a kind of leading conservative law professor, wrote that devastating review for the Texas Law Review entitled simply, No, is administrative law unlawful? No. And he characterized Hamburger's book as not engaging in history or legal argument, but I think something like dystopian constitutional fiction, which is a line that's always really stuck with me. And putting on my own boring legal history hat, What's remarkable when you look at um, publications by the journal Regulation from the 1970s or the position of uh, conservative legal intellectuals like Antonin Scalia before he becomes a Supreme Court justice, they're not hostile to organizations like ACUS. They don't believe that the administrative state is fundamentally legally problematic. They're interested in addressing parts of it. But famously, of course, Scalia is a big champion of Chevron deference, at least before he before he passed away, before this turn of the conservative legal movement. And even, I'd say, before the election of Donald Trump, if you were looking for high-profile conservative judges who expressed concern about administration or hostility to the administrative state, what we're now seeing is kind of a mainstay of a certain kind of conservative legal argument connected with Hamburger's position, those judges were pretty few and far between. I would have said that the leading one, the most prominent, was probably Neil Gorsuch. And there were maybe only a handful who wrote as he did. So, you know, I think back to when I was a law clerk, I remember at some point, because we had an administrative law case, just looking through what was in the federal reports that expressed what was becoming less of a fringe position, but was still mostly this fringe hamburgering position. And there was very little writing. And I'd say, you know, maybe this is a bit of a provocative statement. Even now, there isn't actually that much judicial writing about how dangerous or terrible the administrative state is. 
It just happens that several of the people most committed to that writing are Supreme Court justices. I might sort of um, situate this slightly differently in a way that I, I don't think is in contrast with what Noah's saying, but maybe just complementary to it, which is that, um, you know, in some sense, uh, the three Trump uh, appointed justices are the sort of three justices who came of legal and political age in a sort of post-Goldwater moment, right? So you think about, right, Scalia um, or or um, Alito, right? They, they've, they've already sort of figured out their views on the world, um, maybe, uh, you know, right around the time that, that Goldwater gets the, the nomination in 64, but, but certainly, you know, even in 64, right, the Goldwater position is, is sort of too much for most Republicans to accept. That position on the administrative state sort of comes to the fore with Reagan. And if you think about the sort of uh, uh, three uh, sort of relatively young Trump-appointed justices, right, they're the ones who've grown up sort of in the shadow, not just of Goldwater, but then of the sort of Reaganite um, move to make that position on the administrative state, the mainstream Republican position. Um, so I think it's not shocking that in the aftermath of those three appointments, right, that um, that the court is then taking that far more skeptical view towards the towards the administrative state. Right. I'd also note the, the sort of contingency of all of this. Um, this is maybe just a, a separate hobby horse, right? But the idea that you can have someone who's president for eight years who gets two nominations uh, or two two confirmations on the Supreme Court, and someone who's president for four years who gets three confirmations on the Supreme Court, right? That that sort of drives some of this, regardless of where the center of gravity of American political or legal thought is at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, that came up a couple times on on President Biden's Supreme Court commission when I was there. But I digress. Jace, so I hesitate to mention other shows on this podcast, but. Friend of the Gray Center and former DOJ spokesperson Sarah Isger was on Bill Maher last week, and her contention was that a lot of these doctrines have come so fast in response to Congress failing. And so if Congress isn't legislating as much, and she pointed back to the Obama administration in the famous pen and phone comic, if the executive branch is pushing the bounds of discretion, then can we blame enterprising justices for finding these doctrines to kind of grapple with the political situation that might have fallen in their lap? What do you make of that historical claim? So I would push back on the claim that Congress isn't uh, legislating as much. Uh, the first two years of the Obama administration and the first two years of the Biden administration both uh, saw some of the most uh, sort of active Congresses in um, you know, in 50, 60 years. Um, uh, so there's been a tremendous amount of legislation. It's not necessarily sort of continuous, right? There are some Congresses that are more productive than others, but I think if you look at any period of American history, you'll find that. Um, there is um, some sense, although I think not overwhelming, that Congress is responding to Supreme Court opinions less often than it used to. Um, but as far as just the overall sort of amount, or even I would say ambition of legislation, um, uh, I don't think it's it's quite fair to characterize Congress as sort of not doing uh, not doing very much these days. Um, I think it is uh, the case, though, that that um, if you want to respect what Congress is doing and has done, right, you give it its natural reading. You give it the reading that they might have thought it would have, and that includes, I think, respecting the idea that um, Congress doesn't think that they are providing for every potential sort of situation, right? Would they, it, it, it includes respecting their choice to use broad language um, uh, in order to sort of delegate those decisions to, to future decision makers. And sometimes if they use broad language, that actually does mean they're delegating decision-making authority to the courts, 
right? Because there are some statutes where they understand that the courts will be primary interpreters, but there are other statutes where they understand that agencies will be the primary interpreters. And if you're respecting what Congress wants to do, then you need to respect that choice to delegate to the to those agencies. I'm just going to piggyback on, on Josh's point and, and put it in a slightly longer sort of historical arc, which is that there's been a pretty deliberate project to, in some ways, move power away from Congress into the executive branch. And that deeper history is not completely independent from Congress's own legislative capacity, but honestly is kind of independent from it. So I think a lot about how up until 1994, the kind of political imaginary of most Americans was Republicans are going to win presidential elections, Democrats are going to control the House. And it's even a little bit more of an asterisk there, because it's more like the presidency will be contested, not that Republicans will win it, although after Reagan's election in 80, of course, that changes. But the idea that the Democrats would control the House, like that was just an article of faith of 20th century American politics. And so against that backdrop, the Nixon, Ford, and Reagan administration plans to try to do more policymaking through the executive branch begin to make a lot more sense. And even somebody like Carter is an interesting figure, and we can talk more about that. There's a great American political development literature about Carter as a kind of disjunctive president. But some of the things Carter is trying to do are an obvious tension with some of what the kind of mainstream of the Democratic Congress had been up to for a while, although Carter's actually pretty good about going to Congress for legislation, at least on the kind of administrative law matters that I pay attention to. But so so against that backdrop, the um, development by the executive of certain policymaking tools begins to look less like a response to congressional failure and more like a kind of sotto voce attempt to reorganize the way that American democracy is operating, what in some other literature I've called presidentialist democracy or plebiscitary democracy is a term that gets used um, and so the idea that, as Blake Emerson writes, we have these two sovereigns emerging, the court and the presidency, you know, it's, it, it's useful to have a functional story about how, oh, it's it's somebody else's fault or it's a natural functionalist response. But I don't think that's quite correct. I think it's actually, you know, the result of a particular um, ideological and strategic approach to governance that is obviously, you know, good for some projects and less good for others. I also just want to jump in and say there are a number of areas in which the court has gone out of its way to attack congressional capacity. Um, And so there's a certain irony that in other areas, it then comes back and says, oh, well, Congress can't do its job. Right. So I think about um, INS versus Chada, which I regard as just one of the absolute worst administrative law decisions, um, where the court basically takes something that, you know, takes a mechanism that uh, Congress had relied on for decades, right, the legislative veto, and just completely pulls the rug out from under it, which doesn't just attack capacity in cases like, you know, uh, Chada, which is an immigration case, but also pulls the rug out of, for example, the scheme underlying the Impoundment Control Act that had been passed a decade earlier, right, which was meant to be a major check on presidential power. I think about something similar with with oversight, uh, you know, congressional oversight capacity, where, you know, even during Watergate, you know, the Senate Select Committee case in the D.C. Circuit basically refuses to give uh, the Senate Watergate Committee in- access to information. And part of its rationale is, oh, don't worry about it. Grand jury already has all this information. Right. And then the sort of narrative we get coming out of Watergate is um, sort of the heroic judiciary drove Nixon from office, right? Um, you know, United States versus Nixon, great case. Uh, uh, you know, what was Congress doing? Um, 
Whereas, in fact, right, there is an alternative narrative that could have happened if the courts hadn't slowed down the congressional investigations and sped up the, the, the judicial investigations the way they did. And I think we see this in the recent um, uh, Mazur's case as well, right, with the court basically denying Congress access to information. So, you know, there is also a, a deep irony in the courts complaining, you know, someone like Neil Gorsuch, um, who has a long personal and family history uh, with contempt of Congress, sort of saying that... Um, uh, con- congressional lack of capacity is why the courts have to step in when the courts also have this side project of attacking congressional capacity. Yeah, since I since I plugged uh, Noah's article, this is probably a good point just to point out that if folks want to read more on this, Josh has a really interesting article out this year uh, in the St. Uh, Louis University Law Review called The New Judicial Power Grab, and, and he had a New York Times op-ed uh, that grew out of that. In, in describing uh, your sense of the Roberts Court sense of Congress, it reminds me, sometimes sometimes you hear of, of populists who don't like actual people. Um, I guess what your theory of the Supreme <laughs> Court is, uh, they like Congress, just not particular Congresses, maybe. Uh, they like Congress, and they, they say they like Congress in theory, um, but in practice, um, they, they're, they're not big fans of the Congress as it actually exists today, is, is maybe a way of phrasing your, your point. Maybe not. No, I think that's I think that's right. And and I would say, um, you know, they have an idea of Congress uh, that that's a regulatory ideal, right? Because they're sort of put. It's not just that this is their idea they have in their head, but also therefore this when they decide cases, they sort of try to push towards this ideal that frankly has never existed. In many cases, it's an idea of Congress sort of devoid of parties. In some cases, it's Congress devoid of politics altogether. It, it's based on a lack of understanding of internal congressional, both policies and priorities, but also procedures. And they're sort of saying, well, you know, to the extent that Congress has fallen away from this ideal, um, we need to sort of push it back towards it somehow, um, without sort of actually asking, has Congress ever behaved that way? And if not, is that actually the ideal? Or is it just sort of you know, are, are you attempting to impose sort of your your ideas about what the judiciary is onto a completely separate institution that shouldn't be structured the same way? So what I'm hearing is when I and my friends defend the major questions doctrine as a effort by Congress to channel political energy out of agencies and back towards Congress where it belongs, uh, you might be a little skeptical of that of that framing or narrative. Yeah, and I would actually point you towards a former student of mine named Bo Bowman has a great piece in the Georgetown Law Journal called Americana Administrative Law, um, which which I think makes this point at, at some length, right, that these cases are not funneling power back towards Congress as it exists, and, and therefore are not funneling power back towards Congress at all. What they're doing is sort of consolidating it in the court. There's also just a riff on that for a second, putting on my, again, my boring legal historian hat. There's something kind of fun about the idea that what Congress should really spend all its time doing is talking about the major questions and that the minor things are appropriate for agencies. Because, of course, when you look across American political history, what you see is that Congress used to spend the bulk of its time debating things that were, from our perspective, incredibly minor, like whether people should get individual pensions or particular private bills or giving citizenship. And when you think about how Congress is organized, that makes a ton of sense. Like, of course, they're local regional representatives. They're they're um, permeable to certain kinds of concerns in a way that other institutions might not. Meanwhile, it's not that Congress doesn't take action on the important questions. They always have. But just as Josh was suggesting, Congress often in its wisdom has decided that the best way to deal with some of these major questions is to entrust it to someone who they think will make a good decision about it. And that starts, of course, from the very first Congress. And you know, I can go on at great length about everything from taxation to post roads to retiring aspects of the federal debt. 
But, you know, per, perhaps the representatives, it's kind of shocking to say this, given that you can read about how, um, you can certainly read a lot of coverage about how venal our representatives are. That, of course, has been a criticism of our representatives for as long as we've had them. But it is possible that despite their venality in their wisdom, they recognize that they would rather spend their time arguing about, I don't know, whether somebody back home in Missouri should get their pension while leaving the question of, you know, where to cite the post roads for the construction of a future national market to people who are wrestling with the intricacies of those problems. And I'll, I'll add, you know, one area that Noah didn't mention there that, um, but that certainly could, and this actually right ties into the CFPB funding case, is appropriations, right? So you look at the very first appropriations law from 1789, it's, it's one paragraph long, it divides appropriations into four categories, and just says, you know, the, the government can spend up to X dollars uh, for each of these four categories, and that's it, right? Um, and then you, you start to get more detailed appropriations bills in the 1790s as you get the sort of solidification of, of quasi-partisan competition, right? And so you have um, uh, Democratic Republicans like Albert Gallatin in the House, uh, who creates the, the Ways and Means Committee in the House, who don't trust the Hamilton-led Justice Department. And that's why they start having sort of increasingly specific appropriations bills. Um, but you have sort of from the very beginning a sense that it's fine if you just want to let Hamilton figure out how to spend all the money, right? The first Congress is fine with that. You know, by the time you get to the fourth or fifth Congress, they're not so sure anymore, right? And so this is a, this is a calibration that Congress has been making from the very beginning, right? How much do we trust the executive? How much discretion do we want to delegate to the executive? And before we leave the major questions doctrine, I do want to talk about the CFPP funding case. How should the court approach cases where you have an agency applying a novel interpretation of a statute that's decades old? So granting everything you've said about Congress, how would you have the court act in a situation like that? The fact that an interpretation is novel is not necessarily a point for or against it. And there's a great piece by Leah Littman about the anti-novelty canon anti-novelty doctrine from several years ago. And I remember first reading it and thinking, God, Professor Littman is so smart, but is this really a thing? And now all that I can say is, my God, she's not just smart, but she's also prescient. Because in fact, as, as Leah picked up on in that article, it's much easier to attack an interpretation you don't like on the grounds that it is novel than it is to actually grapple with the hard business of statutory construction and interpretation. So my own personal feeling is that the Roberts Court has frequently fallen back on invoking certain stylized tropes. One of them is a certain stylized vision of separation of powers. Another, just as Josh was alluding to, is a certain stylized vision of how Congress is supposed to operate. The anti-novelty doctrines or canons are, are another example of that, where rather than get into the business of wrestling with, is this allowed under the Constitution? What does it mean? They'll just say, well, it's new and that novelty makes us suspicious. Yeah, I agree completely. I was going to say almost exactly the same thing, right, which is that um, the way I would have them grapple with a novel interpretation of a statute or novel application of a statute that's decades old is exactly the way I would have them grapple with a, a novel application of a statute that was passed this year, where it's a matter of first impression, right, which is to say the normal tools of statutory interpretation, right? Look at the statute and and try to see sort of all things considered uh, what you think it, it means. And and in the context of something that delegates power to an agency, I would say one of those important tools is deference to the agency, especially, um, you know, where it's clear that, that Congress has intended to delegate these decisions to the agency. Let me throw in my, my, my quick theory of what I think is happening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you know, the Roberts Court, even in its, say, its conservative majority, the six justices, they're winding up in the same place on a lot of these cases, almost all the cases that we're talking about. 
but not necessarily in the same ways, right? J- Gorsuch and Justices Gorsuch and Thomas, especially from the start, been really pushing on the non-delegation doctrine and this this view that Congress is delegated away its its power, it's really abdicated its duty. And of course, even Chief Justice Roberts has famously joined that in the in the Gundy dissent. But when he writes his own opinions, it's not so much about that. Uh, it's more about what I what I see is his worries about unsteady administration. That that we live under a government that radically changes policy from one administration to the next. And a lot of Roberts's opinions are an effort to slow that pace of change. And it's not just in the cases we've been talking about so far, um, but it was in the cases during the Trump administration, um, whether it was the DACA repeal case or the census uh, case, which were about arbitrary and capricious review. Um, but even before that, in King v. Burwell, right, the court famously rules for the Obama administration and its interpretation of the Affordable Care Act on the insurance subsidies. But first and foremost, by not allowing Chevron to play a role. In an oral argument, Chief Justice Roberts, um, he, he said explicitly that that if they applied Chevron, you'd have all kinds of flip-flops from administration to administration, and it would be, um, I always like to use the Hamiltonian term, a ruinous mutability. Robertson used that term, but it, but Hamilton did. And so from administration to administration, what I see Roberts trying to do is to slow the pace of change um, from one administration to the next. That means different things during different administrations in terms of the actual upshot. But I wonder if maybe there aren't a couple of threads of conservative jurisprudence that we're seeing sometimes move in parallel, um, uh, move together, um, but not always. And they're happening for different reasons. Does that does that seem at all plausible to you? Or am I am I just barking up the wrong tree here? I love the the gloss. And, and I can't help but observe that, of course, Roberts clerked for Judge Friendly Bruce Ackerman, hardly a conservative, also clerked for Judge Friendly. And the first person that I, I'm familiar with, other people may have made this argument, but to lay out a sort of function for judicial review of action as this kind of conservative smoothing down action was actually Bruce was act in, in years ago. So Adam, I love, you know, there's a way in which you're articulating a kind of functional theory of the judiciary. And you could do it in Ackermanian terms, saying it's about preserving a particular kind of settlement until there's another kind of referendum on the way the structure of government should go. Or you can do it in sort of a small C, maybe almost a Burkean conservative sense. I think my, my so, I, so one, I just kind of love the argument as an argument. I think the, the kind of two puzzles that I would have with it, one would be um, purely descriptively I don't know that it's John Roberts's court anymore. And so even if that gives us insight into John Roberts's mind, there's going to be some question about how useful is that as a guide to the ongoing evolution of the court. And I know we're mostly talking about administrative law here, but you know, to me, the, the sort of, I, I think it was a concurrence dissent in Dobbs that Roberts writes really highlights the way in which there is daylight between his vision of how change through the courts should go. And in fact, where the court is going. So that would be point one. And when it comes to point two, I think the sort of smoothing change on the whole, I think there's definitely something to it. It makes me want to sort of think through some of the cases again, point by point. I sometimes joke with my students that although we can't really teach this to them, that for all intents and purposes, there's something we should call the Fox News canon, which is if a legal issue is on Fox News, the Supreme Court will handle it differently than if it's not on Fox News. Because if it's on Fox News, it's now part of a broader political conversation, a culture wars issue. 
and the court is going to deploy the, the, the sort of tools of interpretation differently than when it's just a regular run-of-the-mill administrative law issue. And so in thinking about, you know, does John Roberts have a comprehensive theory, I'd want to think, okay, does it track the Fox News canon, or are we really just seeing, you know, Chief John Rob Chief Justice John Roberts, who's an incredibly savvy politician, be politically sensitive when it kind of raises to a certain level? So I actually think the Fox News canon is not only real, but it's basically on the face of the major questions doctrine cases, where they talk about issues of vast economic or political significance. Right. And the only way to cash out what what constitutes that political significance is to say, OK, well, what's controversial in, po in political culture today and what's controversial in political culture today? Right. Is the only real way to figure that out is to look at sort of the most consumed sources of mass media today. So I think it is absolutely the case that um, that the sort of, you know, vast political significance prong of what makes a, a question major uh, has everything to do with what's on Fox News. Um I would also say, Adam, going back to your, your sort of earlier point, you know, I, I think that's, you know, I think there is that strand in Roberts. And back when it actually was the Roberts court, um, you know, this is when like Richard Ray wrote his piece, The Doctrine of One Last Chance, um, sort of suggesting that, you know, every time Roberts wants to sort of make a major change, you, you can find like an earlier case where he sort of previews that major change, right? So you've got Nemudno a few years before Shelby County and things like that. Um, so I think when it was the Roberts court, there was at least that sense of like, okay, we're going to, um, uh, go slowly. Although I can't help but notice that, you know, Roberts is in the majority in Sackett, for example, um, uh, which is a significant change in administrative law sort of imposed by the, by the court. Um, but I, but I completely agree with Noah, right, that this isn't John Roberts's court anymore. Yeah. But e even in Sackett, by the way, Roberts telegraphed a lot of his criticism of the of previous sort of views of, of the waters of the United States rule in the, that earlier run of, um, of, of Waters United States cases. But anyway, I digress. Well, I don't know if it applies the Fox News canon, but I know the court just heard argument in the CFPB funding case last week. And we often joke that most normal people don't talk about Chevron deference, but I guess we'll see if Loper Bright ends up on Fox News too. But sticking with the CFPB case, who do you think had the better of the argument there? How should we be thinking about appropriations in the context of the administrative state? So I have an embarrassing confession, which is I did not listen to the oral argument, despite having joined an amicus brief in the case. And part of it is because, and maybe this will out me as a, a nihilistic law professor who should be taken out to pasture, I tend to think, drawing on my own experience as a law clerk, that oral argument is an awful lot of show, but not a lot of delivery, that it's a more more heat than light, I guess, would be the line. Um, because, and just to sort of take a step back, right, why are we even hearing this case about the CFPB at all? And much as I would like to believe that it's for high-minded reasons connected with thinking through our constitutional structure, that is not the reason we have this case. We have this case for the same reason that we've got jarcacy that's coming down the line, for the same reason that Loper Bright made its way up, which is that there are powerful organized forces that are really upset about the way that regulatory policy is organized and that cuts into their profits. This is especially true when it comes to financial industry matters. People have been going after the CFPB from the day that it was created, not because of its constitutional structure, but because it cuts into things like overdraft fees, like payday lending matters that are powerful, economically successful interests. And those interests, the, the political economy of regulation is not very complicated. If it's cheaper to challenge an it regulate if it's cheaper to challenge a regulatory agency in court than to pay the regulatory fee, 
you hire your lawyer, you go to court and you give it your shot. So with respect to the CFPB, it does feel to me like all of the arguments are genuinely beside the point. The kind of underlying political reality is that there are forces interested in preventing this kind of regulation. They've made common cause with some folks who are more generally concerned about forms of regulation they'd like to oppose, and they found a vehicle for raising those challenges. The particular issues they have now decided to focus on happen to be getting traction. They picked other ones first. First, it was the structure of the CFPB. Now it's the funding mechanism. I don't doubt that if the CFPB survives, there will be more cases in front of the Supreme Court trying to pick out other features of the CFPB to keep taking shots. So as I see the case, the whole thing is really a question about whether the United States government is able to regulate and the role of the courts in supporting or undercutting regulation. So, okay, that's my like general position. I filed an amicus right, I joined an amicus brief that went into detail on several of the issues, basically to say all of these issues are made up from the delegation question to the appropriations question. They are all made up. We can find lots of other agencies, many of which are boring and have been around for decades that have structures that are comparable, that have never been thought to raise any problems. So doing an analysis of the particular questions, I think is just to give them way too much credence, unless you wanna start arguing that actually the entire structure of the administrative state is unconstitutional, that we've been living a lie for years. It's finally time to bring the constitution in exile back. Lawyers have been misled. That's a conversation I'm kind of up for, but we shouldn't mislead ourselves about why we're having the conversation or what we're really talking about. I just want to say um, the the brief that Noah is on is a fantastically written. I think it's one of the best amicus briefs I've ever read. Um, so if for people who haven't read it, the, it's the Scholars of Constitutional History amicus brief. I, I am not in any way involved with it, but this is sincere admiration for that brief. Um, I agree with Noah to a large extent on this. I think, you know, obviously, um, you know, I was joking with, with one of my colleagues the other day that there, there seems to be, there, there might be a CFPB canon, right? Which is just that like, um, you know, the CFPB is just sort of more hated than pretty much any other agency on the right. Um, uh, and so there have been, you know, all these challenges. Um, and I think what's motivating the challenges is exactly what Noah has suggested. I think the reason, though, that this particular challenge is almost certainly going to fail um, is because uh, is for reasons that that Noah and his colleagues point out in the brief, which is that it's just unless the court is willing to be so bald as to say there is a CFPB canon or so extreme as to say the entire administrative state is unlawful. Um, and I don't think there are five votes for that. I don't even uh, think there are four votes for that. Um Unless they're willing to do those things, the problem is the CFPB structure and the CFPB's funding in particular is just so banal that they they can't the, the opinion won't write to say that the that the appropriations uh, clause gives you a reason to strike it down. And we saw so I didn't listen to oral arguments because I had a class then, but I, I have sort of uh, read part of them. And you see this with um, uh, with uh, Noel Francisco who who keeps getting pushed on. You know, because the 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 government's brief is is uh, also very good about pointing out like none of these things are unique. Here's a dozen examples of each. And finally, uh, what Francisco is basically forced to argue is, yeah, but it's the combination of all of them that we haven't seen before. It's like a mosaic theory, right? Um, and, and I I don't think he got a ton of sympathy from from any of the justices on that because it's really hard to say like yeah each of these things in isolation is fine but somehow magically you combine them and it's just a little bit too far right that sounds an awful like the lot like the kind of squishy balancing that most of the justices on the right have spent their career sort of attacking um, so I, I you know I, I think I have no doubt that there are two votes against the CFPB on this and there might be three but I don't think there are more than three. 
Um, uh, so I think the art, the specifics do matter um, uh, because they just make it too hard uh, to actually come to that conclusion. To piggyback off of Josh's point and sort of blow the question up a little bit, right? Lurking in the background is a question about what tools Congress is allowed to use when it's trying to design regulatory agencies to deal with problems. And one of the major intellectual legal problems with the kind of argument that's being advanced against the CFPB, and actually it connects us back to your earlier question about novelty, is that in some ways you're being left with one of just two positions. Either Congress is allowed to innovate within bounds, of course, but whether it involves combining different tools from previous agencies or designing new agency structures. So either Congress can innovate or it can't. Or by some weird metaphysical reality, we have actually entered the end of administrative history and we have exhausted all the possible designs under the Constitution. And certainly putting on my, like, my most originalist sympathetic hat, it's very difficult to find any reading of the Constitution by the people who drafted it or its first interpreters, according to which we, we would have exhausted all of its possibilities for addressing new problems now. Obviously, it provides constraints and binds. I'm a constitutionalist at the end of the day. Like, maybe constitutions of some kind are a good thing. You can fight about written or whatever. But like, bounds, basic laws, they, they're useful. But it's hard to find where the principle would come that would say, no more innovating. And certainly given the kinds of problems that we find ourselves facing, it's reasonable to imagine that not only should Congress be allowed to continue to innovate, but we will have to innovate looking forward to the many challenges we're likely to face. Like quite a sequel to Fukuyama's end of history, the end of administrative history. Uh, the, last chat, the, end of, the end of administrative history is a very sad time, uh, as Fukuyama would say. But you know, the point earlier, Josh, about Francisco's argument, what what his approach reminded me of in a way, bringing back to Chief Justice Roberts again, was the court's opinion in Free Enterprise Fund, where they sort of drew a dotted line around Humphrey's executor and said, okay, we're not going to roll that back, but we're going to be very wary of anything novel that goes beyond that. And I wonder if Francisco is making a somewhat analogous argument. I'll say, um, uh, and this is a little gauche of me, right? To 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 invite my friends over to to give them like their their full airing, and then say, "Here's where I disagree with all of you." But I'll just say on this one in particular, um, you know, back before I was here at the Gray Center and so on, um, I did help file the original CFPB lawsuits um, back in 2012 when I was still a lawyer. And it's funny because, as Noah said, you know, the original litigation all wound up basically culminating in CELA law. Um, but the original cases um, and w- the case I was involved in was called. Um, uh, State National Bank of Big Spring. It was a community bank that sued, along with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and another nonprofit. So it was a it was a bunch of people. Um, but we did have the funding claim in there, and I remember that because that one was my responsibility. I was sort of making these arguments from the ground up in 2012, and I'll tell you, Noah, they got really no traction um, in the courts. And when the, the D.C. Circuit heard the case, I think it was actually it was then Judge Kavanaugh wrote an opinion. We're in a footnote, he said, well, there's this funding thing, but to the extent it's an issue, it's, again, the metaphor was something like, it's just extra icing on an already unconstitutional cake. And so over and over <laughs> again, the, the, cases, the, the cases kept focusing on executive power. And I guess that's natural because we have a century of fights over unitary executive, executive power, Humphrey's executor, and so on. And so there was a vocabulary for it. Even after, I, I mean, I haven't been involved in litigation since 2015, 2016, um, but just stepping back and watching, as obviously a, a critic and skeptic, but really a critic of the CFPB, 
um, on both a constitutional level and a policy level. So I'm, you know, one of those. But I've I've found the funding issue just fascinating. Um, and I, you know, I can and have sat around and you know try to draw lines saying, well, the CFPB funding isn't like user fees. It's not like licensing fees. It's not like the Fed's open market operation. It's different. And the other, my critics, the other side would say, well, you're just kind of gerrymandering around the CFPB. I don't think I am, but that that would be the response. Um, but one way or another, one of the things I found fascinating about this case, now that this case, which is not an out, it's totally separate from the cases I was involved in a decade ago. So I don't, it's not my case. But there isn't really a vocabulary around the constitutional issue. There were the there were the FCC licensing license fee cases, you know, and there are the social security cases. Um, but I I for this one, I did listen to oral arguments, kind of got out my bag of popcorn and just sat there watching the show because it is really interesting to watch the justices think about this issue from the ground up, really in almost a first principles way both in terms of what does the Constitution mean on the Appropriations Clause, what did it mean, what was it intended to do, and then also the separate question of what's the role of the judge here, um, and it's the kind of the the engagement versus restraint debate. And I have no idea how the how the court's actually going to decide the case. Um, no clue, and I I didn't really get a clue from oral argument either. Um, but I I just found it a fascinating case. And having having stared at this issue for the last 13 years of my life, I, I know all the limits of the challenger's arguments. And I know that it's there's going to have to be sort of a leap of faith one way or the other. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very interested to watch, to watch how this case comes out. I really like the way that you frame that, Adam, to say that it's about question of vocabularies, right? Because I would have just said that the key thing about SALA law is that not only has there been a ton of debate around executive power, but there was also a kind of coherent intellectual structure. There was a movement that was pushing it. When Roberts writes Free Enterprise Fund, he's already working on 30 years of the conservative legal movement having created an architecture for using notions of presidential power to solve certain problems. And I think my like historical rejoinder to your observation would be, wait, is it that the justices are thinking about appropriations from the ground up? Or is it that for a variety of reasons, that just isn't where there's a cutting edge in the Constitution? The attempt to turn it into a cutting edge is part of a project of innovation. And, you know, perhaps in 20 years, the shoe will be on the other foot. You and I will be talking about how the court is, for the first time, trying to make sense of the general welfare clause or whatever. And and again, I think we'll, we'll what I'll be saying in that moment is not, oh, look, you know, this is how... This is like the sort of fascinating challenge of judicial interpretation or whatever. It'll be, oh, wait, these are, you know, you've got legal innovators trying to achieve certain certain goals using a culture to get there. And if they fixate on something new, this is what it starts to look like. Hopefully the general welfare clause and, and not like the quartering clause, of the Third Amendment. Well, something will have gone horribly wrong. Anyway, I, I interrupted you, Josh. No, just to piggyback on, on what Noah's saying about, you know, sort of why this arises in this context, right? If you were to ask sort of, where is genuinely sketchy stuff going on in appropriations, um, sort of stuff that, that comes close to the constitutional line? Um, what I would point you towards is not any of the domestic agencies, but rather the CIA, 
um, right, where the Central Intelligence Act has created this deliberate opacity, right? We have um, not only secret appropriation statutes, but we actually have the CIA with the statutory authority to take money from that has been appropriated to other agencies, to domestic you know, policy agencies um, for the CIA budget, such that the CIA budget is completely invisible to outsiders, right? But you can't imagine this court, or probably any court, right, invalidating the CIA funding structure, um, right? So I think there's a, you know, if we're thinking about why this case arises now and why they're thinking, uh, why they're struggling now to develop a vocabulary for this, I think it goes back to the um, issues that Noah pointed out originally, right, which is that there is a, um, there's a constituency that has the ear of the conservative legal movement to which a, a supermajority of the justices uh, are committed that, um, that that sort of wants to find a way to destabilize certain institutions, and the CFPB is, is right at the top of their list. So speaking of executive power, we should touch on Loper Bright before we run out of time. What do you think the court is going to do with the future of judicial deference to agency statutory interpretations? Do you think they're going to be having this big rethinking of all the precedent that's developed over the past few decades? Or do you think it'll be a more muted response, kind of like Kaiser was to our? So, Jace, you're going to hate me because I want to fight the hypo, which is you say, let's talk about this as executive power. And this is one of my hobby horses. Nowhere in the Constitution, despite Neil Gorsuch's protestations to the contrary, does it say that there are three and only three branches the Constitution could have been written that way. A lot of state constitutions are. Several state constitutions at the time were. The federal constitution was not. You might think, using boring tools of legal interpretation, that that means something. But our current Supreme Court does not. Play with me for a second, and let's take it seriously. Suppose that administrative agencies are not obviously part of the executive branch. Or, even if they are part of the executive branch, based on their design, not necessarily tools of presidential power. Well, then I think a lot of the arguments about Chevron begin to lose some of their force. So we all know that Congress has the power to specify in detail the kinds of duties that federal officers have. They can specify the procedures that federal officers need to follow. Congress, even under pretty conservative interpretations, can use the necessary and proper clause in many detailed ways to advance its policies. If Congress wants to use its powers to ensure that certain opinions are taken into account or that expertise is able to have a certain remit, hard to see what's wrong with that. So that's Noah Rosenblum's personal hobby horse about the attack on Chevron, that I think the concern comes from a pretty misguided place. And then putting on my institutionalist hat, I tend to think a lot of the debates about Chevron and Chevron deference have just kind of misunderstood the way that government operates. So in a very boring way, if you've got hundreds of federal judges but thousands, tens of thousands of administrative adjudications happening every day, you're going to end up with certain regimes of deference, regardless of what you call them. The key point is that before Mead, people don't think of Chevron deference as necessarily different from Skidmore deference. And of course, when Chevron is decided, it's not understood to be some sort of transformative case. John Paul Stevens famously goes to give a talk and is asked about that transformative case he just wrote Chevron, and he goes, I'm sorry, which case? So the idea that there is this kind of new super world of deference that is different and transformative, and that's what's at issue in Loper Bright, 
All of this strikes me as a profound misunderstanding. So I strongly suspect that regardless of what happens, suppose that Loper Bright leads to the Supreme Court writing an angry opinion, explaining that Chevron was wrongly decided and overturning it. 20 years from now, you will still have regimes of deference for at least all of the non-Fox News cases. Meanwhile, even in the absence of overturning Chevron in Loper Bright, you've got all kinds of decisions in which the Supreme Court completely ignores agency expertise, ignores established doctrines of deference. And they were doing that before West Virginia v. EPA. So even before we get the major questions doctrine, we've got the Supreme Court reaching into agencies to revisit when it wants to. So so at like the highest level, it strikes me that the sort of Loper-Bright conversation is, is kind of missing the ball. Where Loper-Bright really does matter, and in some sense the damage has already been done, is I think inside agencies. So I'm, I'm a law professor, right? I don't really know what's going on inside agencies, but my understanding from talking with some people who do is that ever since West Virginia v. EPA, agencies have been kind of chilled. They've been making sure that they are not pitching anything as major questions in order to avoid court scrutiny. They are walking back from the grant of regulatory authority Congress gave them in order to try to avoid running afoul of the courts. Chevron the thing it did for agencies that was so important was what it did to internal agency culture. It gave agency administrators and adjudicators some sense of a safe haven so they could go about doing the business that Congress has charged them with doing, which, let's recall, is overwhelmingly boring, important business. I worry that in this ideological fight over whether we should strike down Chevron, based, as I just said, on premises that I think are incorrect, what we're actually going to do is make life a hell of a lot harder for boring agency administrators and public servants who just want to know what they're allowed to do so that they can implement the laws that Congress has charged them with implementing. And for what it's worth, I think almost whatever the Supreme Court issues in Loper Bright, unless they go out of their way to try to reassure agency administrators that they have certain kinds of powers, which would be to be worried about state capacity in a way that at least this court does not seem to be attuned to, that the decision is just going to continue to chill internal agency behavior, regardless of what its explicit statement is. So long sum up, I think the holding will be basically irrelevant because certain forms of agency deference are built into the structure of our government. However, the opinion will matter a ton for how agencies operate, but it is unlikely that the particulars of the holding will matter. What really matters is the tenor, tone, and aim of the opinion. And given that this court does not seem to be concerned about state capacity, I am not optimistic. So I agree with almost everything that, that Noah just said. I guess I would just um, hammer home a few points, right? One is that um, if Chevron has ever mattered in the Supreme Court, it hasn't in quite some time. Right, which is to say, um, it's not clear that it ever uh, actually constrains Supreme Court decision making, but um, if it ever did, it hasn't in like decades. But there is some evidence that it affects lower court decision making. So this is uh, Kent Barnett and Chris Walker's uh, article. Um, uh, so I think you know, there, the, the Loper Bright to the extent that. It, to the extent that it overrules Chevron, and I think it's likely to, um, Jace, you mentioned uh, Keesler, but that was when it was still John Roberts's court, right? That's 2019. Um, uh, so I think I think they are likely to go for a more maximalist decision, although, you know, I don't have a super high degree of confidence in that. It will, I think, affect lower court decision making somewhat. But I also agree with Noah that the biggest impact here um, 
Uh, I agree with Noah on two things, right? One, that there's going to have to be some kind of deference regime, right? The courts simply don't have the capacity in, in any sense of the word to do all of this de novo. Um, uh, but second of all, uh, that the biggest impact will be on the agencies um, and on their internal deliberations and on the way in which they um, are perhaps chilled. The one thing I would sort of maybe push back on a little bit is that I think that is likely to be a sort of transitory state in the world, right? I think there's some partial equilibrium thinking going on in, in Noah's uh, uh, approach in the sense that, um, you know, a decade, let's say that the, the, the Loper Bright says Chevron is gone. It's going to lead to five or six years of uncertainty, at least of what our deference regime is, right? Um, you know, what is, what does Skidmore look like in a post Chevron world? You know, if that is even a coherent question. Um, but at some point, we're going to have a sense of what the new deference regime is, and then agencies will adjust their behavior and they will go back to sort of saying, okay, we're, we can get deference thus far and no further. I think that, but the, you know, the key thing is that, that that deference will be less than it is now, and it will be less specifically in cases that fall within the Fox News canon. Um, or, you know, in some scenario 50 years from now, when Democrats control the Supreme Court, maybe it's the MSNBC canon, right? But I think the, the, you know, the, this idea that there are, these cases that rise to a certain level of political salience, and that's when the court says no more deference. I think that's uh, a plausible account of what we're doing now. It's a plausible account of what we're doing going forward. I think it's probably a plausible account of what we've always done. I think that's where we are. Guys, we're out, we're almost out of time. There's one question that maybe I'll, we can wrap things up with here. Um, I'd love for you each to recommend uh, a recent book, uh, or maybe not even a recent book, but a book or an article or a body of work that if you could give as a reading assignment to all the conservative justices and all the conservative judges who are interested in these issues to make the scales fall from their eyes, make them see clearly once again uh, the, the world as you see it, what do you think would be the best thing for them to, to read? And you can't assign your own work, and you can't assign each other's work. That's cheating. And we're already plugging your stuff oh, enough in the show notes. So what's I was about to say? If I could I'm assign, saying? if I could assign any book, it would clearly be Josh's Congress's Constitution, which I think is required reading not only for the Supreme Court justices but for all law professors. Yeah. If I can't do that, I think the two that are on my mind. One is a short classic, goodie, and that's Dan Ernst's book, Josh's colleague at. Um, at Georgetown Law. He wrote this book called Tocqueville's Nightmare, which I tend to recommend a lot because it's actually it's short, it's accessible, you can totally read it. And and Dan takes really seriously the anxiety that people might have about an overweening administrative state and shows that that's been part and parcel of American public law thinking for a long time and shows how it was really conservatives, people like Charles Evans Hughes, who tried to figure out how to reconcile the need for administrative governance with a common law court tradition. So I find that book to be incredibly generative and a really useful way for thinking about how administration fits into American legal history and the American public law regime. Thanks, Noah. And how about you, Josh? Um, so I was also going to start out by recommending one of Noah's uh, works, uh, uh, The Anti-Fascist Roots of Presidential Administration, a fantastic article, um, and also a, a forthcoming article that that, um, that, that Noah has co-authored on um, uh, sort of taking aim at Elena Kagan's uh, uh, presidential administration article, which I think is just fantastic. Um, to fit within the actual rules of the, that we were given just now, though, I would say Nico Bowie and Daphne Renan's Separation of Powers Counter-Revolution um, is, a, I think, a hugely important piece sort of thinking about the ways in which modern uh, takes on presidential power are very much inflected by sort of lost cause historiography. 
if I could assign a classic, but one that I think uh, has not in any way permeated the way the justices think about um, presidential power, or indeed uh, a lot of law professors even think about presidential power, uh, I would say Richard Neustadt's uh, classic, Presidential Power and the Modern President, um, which really, I think, gives us a an under a deep nuanced understanding of the presidency that does not allow it to fit within these sort of very clearly siloed you know uh, article 2 uh, branches but really thinks or article 2 constraints but really thinks about the ways in which there are deep interconnections with the other branches and that there's a deep politics that goes on within article 2 right notwithstanding sort of unitary executive theory um so that those would be my two conditions Great. Well, uh, I, I don't know that there's, I'm, I'd be shocked if there are any judges or justices listening here, but everybody else who's listening to this podcast, uh, you have your reading assignments, uh, Daniel Ernst's Tocqueville's Nightmare, and Bowie and, and Raynon's, uh Separation of Powers, Counter-Revolution. But uh, most of all, please be sure to read Josh's book on Congress, read all of his great work, all of Noah's great work. In fact, one of those papers might have been uh, the, one of the papers you workshopped at the Gray Center, Noah, years ago. I can't remember. I was about to say that that article that Josh so generously recommended had its origins at a Gray Center conference uh, several years ago. We're delighted that it's finally made its way into print. I'm delighted that both of you were on the show. Thanks again, uh, Noah and Josh. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.